On air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And today moves towards more farmers having the right to repair machinery. The biggest problem that we've found is that not just in the agricultural sector but also in the earth-moving sector, we've found problems uh, getting uh, the information needed from the bigger um, earth-moving and, and, and tractor companies. And a need to change the system of salmon farming approvals. So I think that's the same in, in Scotland, the same in Norway, the same in Canada, the same in, in Tasmania. If we actually want to start addressing um, some of the issues that are arising, we need to actually start thinking about how to engage these people in a different way and in a way that is more appropriate for them. The contentious issue of the expansion of salmon farming coming up and how salmon farms are approved. And in just a moment, a way forward on farmers having the right to repair machinery. G'day, Tony, with you on this Monday. Beautiful day out where I am. Hope it's the same for you wherever you are across Tasmania. We'll check in with the Bureau at the halfway stage of the program to see what's in store for the week. Also calls to make sure more vet students stay in rural and regional areas when they finish their course. And an expert talks about a business strategy for Tasmania's apple farmers as the latest harvest springs into action. Plus, we'll take your thoughts on any issues via the text line 0438 922 That number 0438 922 First up, the federal government has revealed plans to consult the agriculture sector on the right to repair issue. Assistant Treasurer Andrew Lee has told the Victorian Country Hour they want to expand the motor vehicle service and repair information sharing scheme, scheme at least, to include agricultural machinery. It's an issue of consumer sovereignty. It's also an issue of competition in the repair market. In the context of passenger motor vehicles, we had a problem where if data wasn't being shared, independent mechanics would basically go to the wall. Uh, they'd be able to wash the wheels, but they wouldn't be able to get under the hood. It's been important in regional areas because uh, people often would have to otherwise drive a long way to get to an authorised dealer. Instead, they can use an independent mechanic. And all those same principles flow through to farm machinery. And someone who knows the problems the ag sector faces when trying to fix machinery is Darren Downey from Orbost. He's run an engineering company for the past 36 years and is often called to help farms repair equipment along with earth moving and logging machines. He's told Annie Brown information from manufacturers needs to be made available to those who help repair the machinery. The biggest problem that we've found is that not just in the agricultural sector but also in the earth moving sector, we've found problems uh, getting uh, the information needed from the bigger um, earth moving and, and, and tractor companies. Uh, when there is an, um, a breakdown that a farmer has. And quite often these companies tend to like to protect the, the information that they have um, that their technicians use. Um, but the biggest problem is that quite often farmers or, you know, if we've got to use a third party to, to, to do a repair, getting hold of these people is very difficult. And to get someone on site immediately when you've got a, a machine breakdown is, uh, is very difficult. And, the, and what we come up against is that you know, when, when we, we're on the spot and able to help farmers or, or earth-moving people, we just can't get the information from the company that we need to be able to make those repairs immediately. Quite often the other problem that we come up against is that at times we do get, um, they'll send in their technician, which you know, isn't always immediate for remote rural areas, 
it can be a you know a day or two days away, which you not only have the downtime of the of the machine, but quite often um, at times the the uh, technician that they'll send, even though they've been tra- factory trained and with all the information, uh, quite often they're younger people that are you know less experienced in in diagnosis. They've been taught taught from the factory, but often they don't have the the lateral ability to be able to diagnose uh, problems on the spot. That sounds incredibly frustrating, Darren. So you're based out in Orbost. So how long does it take you to get somebody out there to fix some of these machineries, some of these machines that you come up against? Well, look, sometimes, uh, you know, look, you don't want to can these companies totally because, you know, often the the nearest dealers do the best that they can. But often if, um, if it's harvest time or if it's, uh, you know, at busy times, you can't always get somebody straight away. So, you know... You might ring them and say, and they might say that, well, you know, we can't send somebody out for a day or two days, depending on their workload. Well, you know, you've got people that have got machinery that's broken down, expensive machinery that they need to have working. Does it cost more as well to repair your machinery this way? Oh, definitely. Well, you know, often often these companies, um, you know, they they tend to be the top of the tree as as far as you know, charging out and their charge out rates for for um, clients that they've got to come and service, um, which that in itself is pretty unfair. I mean, you know, the idea of having factory-based people like that is to keep their machinery going. You know, it shouldn't be to to make money at all costs for the people that they sell the machinery to because they're not only making the the, the coin when they're selling or, or leasing the machinery, they're making a damn side more money when they've got to send out somebody to try and diagnose a problem and fix a problem and then charge them exorbitant rates to be able to do that. Darren, you were listening to the Country Hour yesterday and you texted in um, telling us a bit about what you come up against. And So you heard uh, Andrew Lee, the Assistant Treasurer, speak yesterday saying that he wants to hear from industry, wants to consult more and wants to expand the motor vehicle service and repair information sharing scheme to include agricultural machinery. I guess what would you like to see happen in to change this current situation? The other side of this coin is that machinery, people that sell machinery um, look after the name of their machinery. So they don't want any Tom, Dick and Harry that can, with with access to this this information, to be able to fiddle around when they haven't got a lot of idea what they're doing. But I think that under the circumstances, that information, the, the, the regulations or some regulation needs to be introduced so that there is mandatory access to that information um, after a machine is sold to the repair industry. Now, who you define as the repair industry, I don't really know because you know, I, I also understand that in remote rural properties, um, quite often the mechanics and their farmers, if they've grown up with the ability to be able to do that, well, those people need to have access to that information. In my opinion, all that information should be available pretty much to everyone. Some of the machinery that we've worked on, and, and just one point comes into mind, we had a, uh, a paving machine that came over from Denmark. All right, this machine broke down here um, a couple of years ago, and we couldn't fix that machine immediately. We, the, the only way that we could go about it is that we had to actually get online, send an email to Denmark to, to be able to get the information to do it. Now, it took two days to do it, to be able to do that, to, to be able to troubleshoot a problem. Some of the other companies that we deal with will have that information actually online. You know, they want to have that information out there because the machinery that they supply 
they want to have it going so they've got a good reputation and people will want to buy their machinery because they've got that immediate backup when it's needed. And to my mind, that is the best way to do business for those companies. Darren Downey from Orbos speaking there to Annie Brown about the right to repair machinery and tractors for farmers. And more on that story at ABC Rural Online from our own Meg Powell, along with Warwick Long and Annie Brown. ABC Rural is where you'll find that story. References to an emerging corporate acronym, ESG, or Environmental, Social and Governance, are growing amongst Australian agribusinesses, and it could be said to change the way we farm. But what does it actually mean? Alice Marshall has this report. ESG. You might have heard of it, maybe from your bank manager or perhaps in a conference setting. But let's break down what it could actually mean for your farming business. ESG encases three major areas. Environment, covering factors like soil health and emissions. Social, covering areas like responsible sourcing and employee engagement. And governance, covering food and work safety. It's a small acronym that encompasses some pretty lofty topics. Combank's National Director of Agribusiness, Carmel Onions, says more than anything, ESG is a disruption. It's uh, almost like a business disruption. It's a lot of change, changing expectations for farmers around how they produce and how they sell and how they tell their stories. So it's a lot of change for farmers to deal with. KPMG's leader of corporate ESG strategy, Robert Poole, described the concept as a set of guidelines governing how businesses look after the environment and their people. Uh, Well, I I kind of define it as the big three. That would be emissions reduction, uh, circularity, so how you can recycle things and stop them going into landfill, and then ethical sourcing, so buying it from reputational sources that look after their people and look after the environment themselves, and then how all of that's governed and, and, and decisions are made. The problem, however, is that ESG guidelines have no national or global set of standards and are instead open to interpretation by individual businesses. As of December 2022, all New Zealand farmers are required to calculate their greenhouse gas emissions and must have a written plan in place to manage these emissions by December 2024. Here's Robert Poole again. Um, baselining is probably almost certainly necessary. I can't see any future where we won't have a similar know-your-number kind of strategy in Australia and that will be a base-level reporting. And we've been working on these nutrient calculators, mass balance calculators, for a long, long time in agriculture so that the, the universities and the sectors are starting to build those up. So it's now a matter of just getting those in use getting that adopted through the sector and agri- I'm confident Farmers Ag will be more than capable of um, delivering some of that baseline. I think it's a, been a, a tradition in agriculture that's building in terms of monitoring what happens on farm more and more um, and as technology started to be more introduced to farm, so everything from the mobile phone through to sensors and satellite data, um, we definitely have to build up that, that data bank in the most easy, cost-effective way to report up the supply chain. There's absolutely no doubt we'll have to do that. And as I say, that'll come to a, through emissions reporting, it'll come through waste management, river health, animal welfare. I think they're all known to us that those issues um, needed to continue to be improved and reported. But as Carmel says, that's now coming as a more important measure, whether it's because of market access into, say, Europe, uh, whether it's compliance regulatory related or whether it's one of our customers like a retailer saying we need to move with you down this path. 
So how could an adoption of ESG guidelines within Australian agribusiness impact your bottom line? Here's market analyst and founder of Episode 3, Matt Dalgleish. On farm perspective, I, I think it's going to be more of a um, giving... If, if the farmers get able to demonstrate they're fulfilling certain ESG criteria, that they will be able to continue to have access to some of those key export markets that we use. So, but I think, you know, as an on-farm level perspective, I feel that it's going to be more a matter of maintaining that kind of important access to all those diverse markets rather than attaching an actual premium for doing or at least satisfying the, these ESG hurdles. Yeah, so you think it'll become, I guess, a, a box-checking exercise to stay in the same markets that you've potentially already been trading into? Yep, that's right, yeah. And that, and then by default, I guess, that if you aren't able, as, a, on, as, as, as an individual farm, able to demonstrate um, you know, particular criteria that, that satisfies the end client, um, that, that then you could lose access and, and then that could then follow with a price discount rather than, you know, so you kind of, I guess, by default you're getting less. So, you know, those that are involved aren't necessarily going to get a premium, but you might be, you know, reducing your opportunities um, if you're not able to demonstrate the criteria that's required. Um, I guess this is something that that focus, you know, we were looking at somewhere like the EU where we're still negotiating through a free trade agreement, attempting to get a free trade agreement through there. But, you know, the EU are, are pushing ahead with this um, green diplomacy or green agenda. I think it's by 2035 um, that they're going to have some significant changes. And if, if, um, if countries that are trading into that marketplace are not fulfilling the standards that they, that they want for their own internal um, producers, that, then you'll get um, forms of like tariff or barriers to trade to get into those markets. But for Fiona Conroy, who runs cattle and merino sheep on Victoria's Bellarine Peninsula, the concept of ESG is still too new to fully comprehend. You know, we've seen these issues come and it's like millsing in sheep. They start off as a bit of a chatter and then they become mainstream and then there's market signals and then those market signals are, you know, the norm. And I just think, you know, we're hearing that, but I think at this stage... It's, it's still that light and distance. Everyone's talking about it. People don't quite know how to get it all together. And I just think we just need to have really good information coming from credible sources. That's Fiona Conroy, a sheep and cattle farmer on Victoria's Bellarine Peninsula, heading that report from Alice Marshall on ESG or environmental, social and governance. Coming up, an Apple consultant from New Zealand touring Tasmania to talk to local growers about their business strategy and raising money for Vanuatu after the recent cyclones. Afternoons with Joel Reinberger. Now, I seem to remember that you started a festival here called All Tomorrow Shoeys about 10 years ago. Are shoeys a part of the Smith Street Band repertoire? Not so much anymore. We all got in serious relationships with people who wanted us to stop drinking out of shoes, which is not unreasonable, I think. Um, Joel You don't want to pass on tenure of the tongue to another person, do you? I have size 15 feet, so I'm doing a full pipe. Weekdays from 1.30pm on ABC Radio Hobart. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Tasmanian growers, apple growers at least, are picking the early varieties of their crops as the harvest season begins. After a volatile couple of seasons, Tassie apple growers have pulled through with a good crop. New Zealand ag consultant Jonathan Brooks visited the state to catch up with farmers and talk planning and business strategy. Fruit's looking good. It's it's a 
crop that we always have seasonal challenges. It's been wet spring, so most of that's been well managed. And um, yeah, I think they're looking forward to a, hopefully a good year. How do you think the actual crop overall from Tassie will go sort of compared to other states? Um, there's been some other states that have been hit quite hard with devastating hailstorms. So the fruit that I've seen here looks like it's in pretty good condition. So hopefully um, it looks like it's running into a, a good year. We're standing in the middle of a, an orchard of Envy, uh, which is one of the more modern apple varieties at the moment. Yes, yep. So um, what we're looking at is we're looking at a whole heap, a whole range of different varieties and how to get the optimum out of each of them. And you're talking to farmers today about, you know, when it's time to maybe pull a couple of trees out and focus on new ones and perhaps a couple of new varieties, but maybe don't do it all at once. Yeah, so a key part of it is like any business, um, you know, growers get quite attached to, to, to putting trees in, but different from a lot of businesses, they actually planted them and nurtured them and look after them. But it is a business and you need to understand that um, what's um, good business going forward, what's the market's looking for and is, is profitable and, and can get the production you're looking for, that's what you need to keep looking, looking forward to. Because it's expensive revamping, isn't it? Growing apples is a very expensive business and, and so you need to, and that, that has areas that you just can't cut costs in. So very expensive to turn the key, so you need to make sure that whatever you're doing is a very sensible um, financial business case. So that might be taking out a few of the old, older trees and replanting a few new ones? Yeah, we work on maybe 5% production every year that you should, should be rolling over. That gives you a, a case for um, being able to keep improving your business but not changing too fast because if you're changing too fast, you're impacting your cash flow, you're causing all sorts of problems there too. And you're all about um, keeping an idea on growth etc but inputting data and, and remembering exactly what happened each season. Are you finding that farmers are doing that more and more? Well, I think um, uh, most food grow, growing industries, it, it's, life is becoming more difficult and it's, and it's harder. And so to do that, you need to understand what's going on. You need to be able to break down your business, not just to an orchard, but not just a variety, but an individual block. And so you need to be able to track that and then ascertain where the, the performance is up to up to spec or whether you need to make improvements or whether it's just past its use by date and you need to replace it. A lot of your talk today was also just about planning and how important that is. Yeah planning's huge so you need to understand benchmarking, being able to compare yourself with other so we're standing in a block of envy how does this block compare to other blocks and then understanding can you make improvements yourself or whether it's just done its time and it's time to remove. Now you're from New Zealand, you obviously look at a lot of apple trees and orchards in New Zealand and you look at quite a few around Australia. Are there varieties we should just be forgetting about now and there are there varieties we should be concentrating on? The key part with varieties is about m matching whatever the market's actually looking for. I suppose they've got to sort of try and predict the future. Yeah, that's a key, that's a key thing is understand where the future trends are and there's other people that are out there doing that but it is a very important part if they want to understand what varieties they should be keeping in farming and what varieties they should be rolling out. So. From what you've seen around the place, in orchards all over the place, what do you think are some really good varieties or some trees that are really great economically and good for farmers? When looking at it from a from a Australian point of view, you know, the Pink Lady coming out of here are still fantastic. And, and as long as they're getting uh, production and they're producing the right quality, 
it's awesome piece of fruit. Raw galas are still absolutely a mainstay, but a lot of the new varieties coming through, the Jazz, the Kansi, the Envy, the, there's a lot of choice out there in the market. So, um, yeah, no, there's some, there's some great fruit out there. And do you have a prediction on how the season will go in terms of uh, returns for farmers this season, 2023? That's a tough one. There is fruit. There's a lower crop this year because of the hail that's gone through. So prediction probably is that those that are fortunate enough to not be devastated with hail, uh, there's probably um, an upside for that. Now here's a hard one. How, do, how does Australia compare to New Zealand in terms of apple production? It's a different gig. No, the, 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 the Australian conditions, there's some good conditions over here and there's some good growers. There's some high production, but we have an export focus and so probably as an average we get, we're, we're definitely driving a higher number. But higher price? No, higher, higher production, higher, higher, no, yeah, higher production, mainly because that's just where our focus has to be. On we're exports, doing. sending them out, so you've got good markets overseas. Yep, there is good markets for overseas uh, export production. So there's no, most people in Australia are looking at internal production, which is sort of a fixed market. The export market is big, but it's quite hard work. We don't have any choice. We've only got, you know, five million people. So, you know, if we're going to grow some apples, we're roughly the same sort of size, roughly. We have to export. New Zealand Ag Consultant Jonathan Brooks chatting to reporter Fiona Breen about some of the issues apple farmers are looking at as they go into harvest. Well, a labour hire business in the Riverland is raising money to support communities affected by the recent cyclones in Vanuatu. More than $11,000 has been donated so far, which will be used to buy bags of rice to provide immediate relief after many food crops were destroyed in Vanuatu. Eliza Berlage caught up with Leanne Liu, who started the fundraiser, and some of the Vanuatu workers she employs. Hi, I'm uh, Roger. I'm from uh, Vanuatu in the island of Tana. We are here... In a currency program, we are here under BLL contract, contractor uh, for fruit picking. Within the last few weeks, there's been a, a number of cyclones in, in Vanuatu. How has this affected your, your families and your communities back at home? Yeah, uh, it's uh, very challengeful. Like, it's the first time ever we had a su- two cyclones in one week. So it damaged uh, a lot of things, crops and houses, many things, but their families are okay. Only the crops and some of our buildings have been destroyed. And yeah, it's very challengeful, challenge for us in this season, this year. And you mentioned a, a lot of crops damaged as well as properties. What sort of crops have been damaged and, and what does that mean for people's food supply? Yeah, uh, like crops, I mean like uh, bananas, taros and other things like uh, cassava. That's our main crops that we usually uh, survive. We usually eat it for like usually eat it. It's a main food, and but at the moment the cyclone uh, destroyed everything. Like that's the main food that we rely on, we depend on. Yeah. That must be really hard to to know. Yeah. yeah. It's a uh, very hard hard times. Yeah. Ever. Uh, for us in this like this this season. And do you know how long it might take to be able to rebuild and replant the gardens? Yeah, it takes about uh, three months for the quick crops. Like potatoes, yeah, and others, and for the rest, it takes about a year for us to wait for yeah to harvest again. 
And so I understand um, that you guys are, are working with the company, your, the contractor company that you're working for to, to help send some food and relief back home. Yeah, can you tell me about what, what you're working on or how you're hoping to support family back at home? Uh, with uh, my co- our contractor, PLL, he's helping us for the, some of the, the money to contribute some money to help uh, my families, support them in rice by buying the rice and we had a lot of supporters already they donate the money we are very sure and we're very proud of and yeah like we so thankful it's in history ever something happened like that in australia in one of the contractors like that so we are very appreciated and my family back home they very appreciate what our contractors and some of the people the helpers the relatives that they have been in the community they have been helped in donating the money so we really appreciate it and every family back home they really appreciate it and how much supplies are, are they needing to, to help? Uh, we need like uh, rice. We, we are hoping to help families back home about 200 uh, pack, pack rice to help them to get started uh, while eating and while waiting for the crops. And Leanne, uh, you, you work with PLL contractors and you're helping organise the GoFundMe. Um, yeah, so because we're the contractors and our workers live in Tanner, we, I thought I'd start this up so that, you know, we can get the food directly to them and, and fast as well. And um, because we work on many properties in the Riverland, we, I reached out to, to people and, and we've had a lot of supporters so far. And it's really great and it's pretty overwhelming that, you know, you do a good job on the property and then they just help you when you just request a little bit of a donation to, to help with these um, terrible cyclones. And yeah, how much has been been raised so far? Uh, so far, we're about at eleven and a half thousand dollars, and that could probably buy about um, three hundred bags of rice so far. Yeah, and a bag of rice could last a family about two weeks. So, um, yeah, we will try and supply as much as we can so that they can have a bit of um, relief. Yeah, straight away, and then waiting for the wait for their crops to to replant and so that can harvest them. PLL contractors Leanne Liu speaking there with Eliza Burlage about the fundraiser to help residents in Vanuatu recover from several cyclones. And if you want to help, more information available on the PLL contractors' Facebook page. Still to come on the country, our changes needed to the approvals process for the expansion of the salmon industry, according to one expert. And the keen young vet students determined to work in rural and regional areas, plus a check on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward. Thanks, Tony. Police are expected to release more details this afternoon after the death of a woman at Campania, east of Hobart, early this morning. Emergency services were called to the remote rural property around 3.30am. A woman was pronounced dead at the scene and a 38-year-old man taken into custody. A former submariner and senator for South Australia says defence has been too secretive about its plans for a nuclear submarine base in Australia. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is expected to announce the acquisition plan for Australia's nuclear submarines tomorrow. Rex Patrick says he's concerned the plan's being formulated without any community consultation on issues such as how the reactors will be regulated and how nuclear waste will be dealt with. 
Canberra's free pill testing service has issued a public warning about a dangerous and potentially deadly combination of illicit substances being sold in Canberra as a party drug. And it's Oscars night in Los Angeles and so far Jamie Lee Curtis has been named Best Supporting Actress for her performance in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. And Ki Hui Kwan received an Oscar in the Best Supporting Actor category for the same movie. Navalny, a film about Russia's main opposition leader, has won the Best Documentary Award for Bulletin at One. Time now to check the latest on the weather. Brooke Oakley joins us from the Bureau. G'day, Brooke. Good afternoon, Tony. Any rainfall of note in the past 24 hours? In the 24 hours to 9am this morning, there was 5 millimetres at Yola, followed by 3 millimetres at Ereba, and then everywhere else was below 2 millimetres. Since 9am this morning, there has been no significant rainfall, but we have seen some light showers on the radar about the northwest of the state, and those may extend to the west this afternoon. But for today, we're expecting relatively settled and mild weather, and that will continue through to Wednesday. The maximum temperatures today are ever so slightly above average, but they are warming tomorrow and Wednesday and expected to reach the mid-20s, which is noticeably warmer than what we had last week. So looking at a little more detail, for tomorrow, some light showers about the west, possibly extending to the northwest and the northeast and fine elsewhere. And then on Wednesday, light showers continue about the west and it's partly cloudy elsewhere with possible light showers and we'll see northwesterly winds developing during the day. The most interesting and significant weather is on Thursday. We're expecting a windy day. There'll be strong and gusty northwesterly winds, which will shift strong and gusty west to southwesterly during the morning as a cold front crosses Tasmania. The strongest winds are expected during the morning and early afternoon, and wind gusts of up to around 100 kilometres per hour are possible, particularly for the south of the state. So a severe weather warning for damaging winds will be issued if required, but at this stage it is marginal. And in addition to that, the windy conditions will lead to elevated fire dangers for eastern parts of Tasmania. But if we jump back to today and tomorrow, there are actually no warnings for today or tomorrow. And looking at the coastal waters, we've got north to northeasterly winds at 10 to 20 knots about the north and east, and west to northwesterly winds at 5 to 15 knots about the west. And then tomorrow we see north to northeasterly winds continue at 10 to 20 knots about the north and the east, and reaching up to 25 knots about the lower east during the afternoon and evening, and northwesterly winds of 5 to 15 knots about the west. The swells in the west and south today are south to southwesterly at two to two and a half metres, decreasing to one and a half to two metres tomorrow. And the wave rider buoy at Cape Sorrel is currently reading 2.7 metres. In the north, the swells are below 0.5 metres. And in the east, we have a south to southwesterly of one to two metres, reaching 2.5 metres offshore in the south today. And then tomorrow, south to southwesterly around one metre, reaching one to two metres in the south. And the wave rider buoy at Mariah Island is currently reading uh, 2.1 metres. Okay, Brooke, now just going back to Thursday. So it's going to be very windy and the temperature is rather warm as well. The warmest temperatures are on Wednesday. The cold front at this stage crosses during the morning on Thursday. So Thursday will be a, co- a cooler day. Okay. And then it will remain cool on Friday before starting to warm up again next weekend. Terrific. Thanks for that, Brooke. 
Thanks, Tony. Cheers. Brooke Oakley from the Bureau with the latest information for you for this week of weather in Tasmania coming up in just a moment. We'll talk about uh, the salmon communities and how the approvals process could be a lot better. ABC Listen. So uh, what's the craziest question you've ever been asked on the Dr Carl podcast? We've had everything from prawn allergies to urine volume and what turned out to be giant cosmic vacuum cleaners. We've had an AI writing a sassy email, cheese causing weird dreams. The background is that nothing is really impossible in science. Dr Carl and Dr Lucy have all the answers on the Dr Carl podcast. Find it on the ABC Listen app. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Just a reminder of that text number 0438 922936. Much has been made of the state government's latest salmon plan and the fractured relationship salmon companies have with communities where they operate around the world. It's a topic that Dr Karen Alexander has spent a fair amount of time investigating, both here in Tasmania and in Scotland, where she's based. She spoke to Larissa Smith about what's feeding the conflict and how to resolve it. In terms of the research that I've been doing, it really started to become a big thing around about 10 years ago. It's as we've seen this increase in aquaculture um, production around the world. So, you know, aquaculture in many, particularly Western countries, has been going on, you know, since the 70s, 60s, 70s, but always on a very small scale, um, often with local, uh, locally owned businesses. Um, and as with any industry, we see a consolidation, we see, um, uh, you know, buyovers of industry, companies getting bigger, often international companies. We have, you know, in Scotland, for example, we've got a handful of companies in Tasmania, even less. And so, you know, I think what happens is as we start to see this consolidation and listing on stock exchanges and sh- the involvement of shareholders and all of this sort of thing, people start to view the industry as being something very different. So if you compare it to farming, for example, people still view farming, at, you know, on land agriculture as being a, f- a little farmer who has, you know, a few hundred sheep and a few hundred cows. And, in my backyard. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think they used to view aquaculture in that way they still view farming in that way, even though it is also consolidated. But there is a much more perception around aquaculture about this consolidation, this um, expansion of big business. And I think it's at the point that that happened that we started to see much more conflict with communities because the companies are wanting to expand. They want to, you know, start to make um, profit that that means that they can pay back shareholders, etc. And so. People, that's how people look at it. They look at it as being big business, coming into their area, taking their resources. And um, I think that's what's probably led to this focus in the last 10 years um, and, and issues starting to become much more to the fore. The other thing that's happened in that period as well is we've become much more environmentally aware. If you look at a lot of the environmental conflict more broadly, again, that's something that's become much come much more to the fore in the last sort of 10 years or so. People are starting to think a lot more environmentally friendly. We talk about sustainability a lot more. People actually think about what they're buying. There's all this messaging about buy local, etc. So I think both of these things have happened at the same time. We've become more environmentally aware. We've seen an industry that all of a sudden is 
expanding at quite a substantial rate. And so this is what's kind of come together to, to lead to this situation of communities being concerned. Salmon farming in Scotland has been around a lot longer than what it has been in Tasmania at a commercial level. How has the Scottish Government or authorities there dealt with the, the conflict that's arisen from the community and, or their concerns about um, commercial aquaculture companies? That's a good question. Um, and I think many communities would possibly argue that they haven't. <laughs> um, I mean, we see, we see a lot of the same conflicts arising in Scotland as we do in Tasmania, and it's the same thing that comes up again and again. So, you know, we have a situation where the ways in which communities are consulted about the development of new operations or the expansion of existing operations is kind of the same throughout Western countries. And it's the way that we've done it for a very long time, which is, you know, we either hold town hall meetings um, or people are invited to submit representations to say, this is what I think about the planning process. And it just doesn't seem to work anymore. Um, but yet we're still doing the same old thing the same old way. So I think that's the same in, in Scotland, the same in Norway, the same in Canada, the same in, in Tasmania. Um, and I think what we really need to start doing is if we actually want to start addressing um, some of the issues that are arising, we need to actually start thinking about how to engage these people in a different way and in a way that is more appropriate for them. Um, there's clearly, it's clearly not working the way we're doing it, right? So how, how can we do it differently and how can we do it better? And I don't think anybody's got that figured out quite yet. You don't have any ideas? Um, I have thoughts, but uh, but I certainly don't have any, any evidence backed. One of the interesting things, and it's come up a lot during the conference, is looking at um, looking at governance approaches, looking at things like marine spatial planning. And marine spatial planning is certainly held up as being a way forward to start to address some of these concerns. So how do you actually start to bring stakeholder um, perceptions into a planning process in a way that, that ensures you can get as many... Um, perspectives into the decision making as, as possible and start to address some of the spatial conflicts that we see, uh, for example. My biggest concern is the tendency to think that it might be a panacea. I don't think marine spatial planning is going to solve all of our problems. Um, I think we need to be aware of that. I think we need to be aware that, as with any governance process, um, some people are included and some people are excluded. And, and we really need to think about how that's happening and why. And I think that's only way we're going to start to address some of these issues around um, perceptions of decision-making processes and, 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 dare I say, a, a lack of trust sometimes in these decision-making processes. So I think we really do need to start to think a lot more depth about, you know, who's involved, who's making the decisions, who's involved, who decides who's involved, why. And, and make that information public because yeah, exactly. that's where that distrust is coming from. They don't know who is linked to what company and what company is funding what research or all of that. Absolutely. So transparency really is, I mean, transparency is key to any, any communication, right? Any conversation with someone... You, you know, you have to be transparent and that's the only way that you're going to build a relationship and build trust. So 100%. And I think, I think one of the really good things about Tasmania is that they are starting to attempt to do that. So if you look at things like the um, Salmon Portal um, that's been set up, that is an attempt to start to be much more transparent about what the companies are doing, what they're being monitored on, etc., etc. So I think Tassie's actually made some really good strides forward in that respect. But we need to keep going, you know.
What's in the pipeline for you personally in terms of research? So, well, for me at the moment, my focus on research seems to be shifting from aquaculture into renewable energy, which is actually really um, a, a big, becoming a big topic here as well in Australia. Um, so, yeah, having moved back to Scotland um, and living in Orkney, which is the islands right at the top of Scotland, we're really, really central to the whole um, marine renewable energy um, industry in Europe. We actually have the European Marine Energy Centre in Europe, which is a testing site for all of the new technologies um, and we've just had a, a huge leasing round um, put out by the Scottish Government to have a substantial amount of offshore wind energy developed in Scotland so that's going to be my focus in the near future uh, and I'm really hoping to keep links with Australia actually around that because I know that there's a lot going on in that space here as well. Dr Karen Alexander, Assistant Professor in Marine Governance and Blue Economy at the Harriet Watt University in Scotland, talking there to Larissa Smith about the planning process for the salmon industry needing to change. She is also an adjunct senior lecturer at the University of Tasmania. Coming up in just a moment, a call for hex debts relief for vet students and a couple of vet students that are firmly entrenched in uh, making sure that they practice when they finish their courses. They practice in rural and regional areas. Afternoons with Joel Reinberger. Now, I seem to remember that you started a festival here called All Tomorrow Shoeys about 10 years ago. Are shoeys a part of the Smith Street Band repertoire? Not so much anymore. We all got in serious relationships with people who wanted us to stop drinking out of shoes, which is not unreasonable, I think. Um, John <laughs> you don't want to pass on tinier of the tongue to another person, do you? And also, I have size 15 feet, so I'm doing a full pipe. Weekdays from 1.30pm <laughs> on ABC Radio Hobart. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. As the shortage of vets across regional Australia continues to cause a headache for farmers and raise concerns for the welfare of farm animals, one of Australia's largest rural veterinary businesses is calling for government support. Managing Director of APM Animal Care, Chris Richards, says graduating veterinary students need incentives to live and work in regional and rural areas. He's calling for urgent hex incentives, such as whipping tens of thousands of dollars off student debts for studying vets to attract them to the regions for at least a four-year placement, similar to medical and teaching degrees. I was putting a lot of pressure on the, on the veterinarians because they're obviously very focused on meeting the needs of their clients and they're subsequently working, you know, huge hours in order to to meet the uh, the needs of their clients and to provide the vet care and, and that for animals. Are there just not as many people that are interested in becoming vets at the moment, Chris? No, I don't think it's about that. I think it's about if you sort of look at what's happening in the veterinary schools, there's a there's a big change to what's happened. So, you know, for example, at, at Melbourne University, they have 50 fee-paying uh, international students. And the likelihood is that, you know, probably 90% of those go back to their home to uh, to practice as vets. So there's certainly plenty of vets coming out of the, the veterinary um, schools, but we're just uh, not able to attract as many uh, to the regional areas as what, uh, as what we'd like and, or, or, or really as what we need because there's just an increased demand. It's very competitive and a high demand course to get into vet school. You know, it would be great if, if the Commonwealth made you know, another 50 or 100 places available because there's certainly an a, um, increased demand out there. You know, for example, at APM, we... We could uh, employ 50 more vets today just to meet the uh, increased demand that we're seeing in rural and regional Australia. So what's your suggestion to fix this issue? 
Well, there's no doubt that um, you know student debt is uh, is a huge issue for for all veterinary students. You know, the, those that are even on uh, Commonwealth-funded places, they've still got um, seventy, eighty thousand dollar debts when they graduate, which is uh, you know a huge burden for them. So, you know, any anything that would reduce that uh, debt would certainly be attractive. And so, we really want to see um, the government look at things such as tax forgiveness or or ways to support um, those students that come into rural and regional areas. If if we can have them come in for four or five years, then there's a very high likelihood that they'll continue their careers in the regional areas. With the vets that end up going and staying in city areas, obviously they wouldn't be treating cattle or sheep or anything like that anywhere near as much as being in a farming region. So do you think that the actual type of care might also be another reason that people wanting to stay in the city and just, you know, take care of dogs and cats rather than larger animals? I think the uh, the bigger issue is I don't think they know what it, what is out in the in the regional areas. So you know most of the exposures that they get to when they're in veterinary schools are with uh, cats and dogs in the city city areas. Whereas those who do come out to the regional areas just see you know the uh, diversity of work that happens and the ability to apply their their skills and and develop their skills across multiple species. And you know I mean we we often talk at APM around how you know as a rural rural and regional veterinary uh, provider that you know every day is is an adventure and you just never know what you're going to get on a day-to-day basis when it comes to different species or different things that uh, need to be done. So what you're talking about isn't necessarily uh, trying to get more people to practice being a vet and going to school because it sounds like there's enough of them it's just about getting them out of the cities into the regions. That's right we've got to get them out there you know get them into the regions we we do things like we do have some scholarships for vet students to come in um, when they're at vet school to come out and experience our clinics. And we have a, a fairly high uh, retention rate of those people. So, you know, it's really about incentivising uh, students as well as graduates to come into the regional areas to see what it's all about. Because, you know, once they get out there, it certainly opens up their eyes. But when it comes to, you know, vet schools, I mean, one of the reasons we can't, you know, we struggle to get a lot of vet students out there is because it's quite expensive. By the time you travel out to the to the regional areas and then you have to you know you have the costs of accommodation and things like that for two or three weeks it's just not something that vet students who are getting these high um, you know debt levels uh, are really uh, looking to do. With an increasing cattle herd and also a huge amount of sheep in Australia at the moment what are the consequences for getting this wrong? Oh if we get it wrong then um, you know potentially you've got animal welfare issues. I mean, I think the other thing that's on everyone's mind at the moment too is that surveillance for some of the uh, exotic diseases is also really critical. You know, we've got uh, FMD and uh, lumpy skin disease on our on our doorsteps up in Asia. So the consequence is that we just don't have enough vets out there doing disease surveillance. Internationally, are other countries offering incentives such as the one that you're suggesting? New Zealand offer a similar program to what we're requesting for vets who want to go into rural areas, and they. They offer $55,000 over five years to graduates that go and spend spend those five years in the in the regional areas. So that is one of our competition is that you've basically got Australian taxpayers funding, you know, a significant number of veterinary places in our veterinary schools, and those, uh, you know, a significant number of those graduates actually going to other countries. So we're just calling on some on, on a similar program to be able to retain them in uh, in Australia. That's APM Managing Director Chris Richards speaking with Jane McNaughton about trying to attract more vets to regional areas and offering urgent hex incentives such as whipping tens of thousands of dollars off student debts 
for studying vets to attract them to the regions for at least a four-year placement. Now, coming up in just a moment, we'll have a listen to a couple of young vet students who are fairly keen to remain in rural and regional areas when they do uh, finish their courses. And the majority of uh, of vets now, the uh, future vets, are female. So that story coming up for you in just a moment. But if you do go to our ABC Rural Facebook page... There's a fantastic photo of apple harvest, sorry, potato harvesting back in the 1960s. And uh, the question is, can you imagine how long it took harvesting potatoes back in the day? Uh, That's what family farming looked like when potatoes were harvested in 1960. Great old photo there. Have a look at it on our ABC Rural Facebook page. ABC Listen. So uh, what's the craziest question you've ever been asked on the Dr. Carl podcast? We've had everything from prawn allergies to urine volume and what turned out to be giant cosmic vacuum cleaners. We've had an AI writing a sassy email, cheese causing weird dreams. The background is that nothing is really impossible in science. Dr. Carl and Dr. Lucy have all the answers on the Dr. Carl podcast. Find it on the ABC Listen app. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. The two young women studying vet science are determined to end up practising in rural and regional areas. At a part of a changing scene for vets, change is rippling through traditionally male-dominated industries as young females use their go-getter attitudes to their advantage. And it's happening right now in the vet industry with a current studying cohort at James Cook University, shifting from predominantly men to now primarily women. Lucy Kipper sat down with two students at JCU who reckon the vet future is fairly bright and will be in rural areas. I'm Lucy Brown. I'm from Claremont. I'm Paris Wibley. I'm from Moree in northern New South Wales. Girls, a long way to travel to come to uni here. Luce, I'll start with you. Why vet? Why get into it? Um, I love, I don't want to say that I love animals sort of thing, but I have always loved cattle. Um, Coming off a property out in Clermont, I've always wanted to do stud cows. I've fallen in love with the show ring and Santa Gertrudis particularly, and so I want to, yeah, end up doing that and breeding cows and that sort of thing. So vet was sort of a prime place to be and place to go up here five hours away so it's not bad at all so <laughs> five hours is fairly close in the country um paris a little bit further for you so why come and study vet um so similar reasons to lucy i um also loved animals growing up on a property and coming out of school i had absolutely no idea what i wanted to do but applied for vet and got in so thought it'd be perfect perfect um thing to study to see where I wanted to go in life and after starting JC, uh, starting vet at JCU and I realised being a vet would probably be perfect for me. There's uh, so much you can do with it and so many different places you can go. Looking out at your cohort, is it female dominated or are you guys kind of a rarity? It's definitely female dominated. It's changed over the years. It used to be male predominantly but yeah it's... Um, there's scarce, scarce males around, which is so good to see. Um, minimal rural people, which is super disappointing. But, yeah, females definitely have trumped. Luce, why do you think minimum rural people? I don't know. I think it's just because a lot of people... Um, uh, a lot of people from home, especially, have just... It's too hard and they've decided to just go out ringing somewhere, which is 
great, love that. Um, yeah, but we definitely need more people in the bush, more rural vets, um, and that's something I think we're lacking a lot in, which is so sad. Yeah, Paris, they kind of talk about vets being really one of the most sought-after careers. They really need people in the industry. Um, I suppose you're not stressed at all about finding a job then, hey? No, definitely. I think once I get out of uni, get through the course and get out, um, it'll be pretty easy to find a job. But I think it's pretty daunting for a lot of people to have to go study for five years, and that's five years where you don't, can't work full-time and have to scrape by with whatever money you can get. Um, but I think the reward is definitely very worth it and it'd be great once you get actually get out into the industry and can work. Yeah and Paris are you hoping to head back to Moree where do you want to go will you go back to the bush or will you go to a city to start off with? Uh, definitely back to the bush without a doubt it probably changes every day where I'm going to end up like maybe yesterday I wanted to go to Western Australia and today like the Northern Territory would be really nice but I reckon in the end I'll probably go back to New South Wales and end up working round home. Yeah, really nice. Luce, what about you? Where are you thinking? Are you going city or are you going back to the bush? Definitely back to the bush. Um, I'm rural at heart, so I want to head, I don't know, probably back out at Clermont, do some repro out there, um, yeah, see what happens. Best thing about VET, I guess, is that there's so many, so many things available for us to do and we can go really anywhere we want to go. A lot in the media has been about the issues in the vet industry and and it's and it's truly seems to be such a struggle. How do you guys feel as young women entering the industry and, and really being aware of the impact that it can have? Yeah, it's pretty daunting. I've definitely seen lots of, especially watching Landline and various other uh, newspaper articles and things like that. I've, I hear a lot of stories of vets who just get so overwhelmed as they get out of the industry and it's pretty scary to see because they're just like normal people like us. But I think they also do talk about the support networks and the people just surrounding yourself with people that do make you happy and just getting by that way. I agree. Um, it's very scary. It's talked about a lot here and we do a lot of um, mental health exercises throughout our course. Um, and, yeah, that support network is so, so critical. And as we, in fifth year and go out into after graduation into the industry, we are given those support networks and we're told, you know, who to go to, where to go to, um, you know, the signs if you're feeling down. And especially as, you know, working with other vets, the signs of other people and really raising alert to them and making sure that they're OK it must be kind of refreshing entering into a degree where it is predominantly women. It doesn't happen every day. Uh, do you guys have a pretty strong support network and, and a bit of fun out here at JCU? <laughs> Definitely lots of fun. <laughs> Typical uni students, probably too much. Yeah, too much fun. But no, it is great. There's a good lot of girls and, and guys, but lots of good, really good girlfriends that we catch up with all the time and have the hard conversations as well as have a party every now and then oh there's so much going on I'm definitely one of the highlights of the year is our own vet bull which in September we, all the vets just get dressed up and have a night at a different usually it's a different location I think it was at the race course last year and just have a night everyone gets dressed up and has a lot of fun 
um, Twin Hills races. Yeah, Mount Garnet. <laughs> it's a big one. Yeah. That's coming up in May. Yeah, there's always a lot going on. Yeah, a lot going on. Lucy Brown and Paris Wibley. JCU vet student speaking there with Lucy Cooper, two young women determined to practice in rural and regional areas. Don't forget to visit our ABC Rural page. Plenty of great stories there, including the story about the right to repair tractors and farm machinery, and also our ABC Rural Facebook page. That's our program for this Monday. We will catch you after midday tomorrow.